Hi, I'm Trent Brown. You're listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. The Modi government, it's nothing if not polarizing. When elected as Prime Minister in 2014, Narendra Modi was heralded by some as India's best hope for the future, a champion of development and reform, and yet by others he was denounced as a dangerous religious nationalist. So how have things played out so far? Here to discuss the successes, failures and aims of the Modi government, we're joined by Pramit Pal Chaudhary, foreign editor of the Hindustan Times. So Pramit, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So Pramit, how would you describe the policy vision of the Modi government? Does it differ in any substantial way from that of governments of the past? Uh not really actually. He has actually adopted a lot of the economic and welfare policies of his predecessor. clear that he doesn't see any real reason to reinvent the wheel as far as a lot of these policies are concerned uh, a perfect example was that he campaigned to uh get rid of the oppose the aadhar uh, biometric identification system for indian citizens that had been proposed and partially implemented by the previous government uh but once he came to power and he reviewed it he said actually this was a brilliant idea because i can use it for a lot of other things like welfare reform uh and has now embraced it uh to such an extent that a lot of people now think it was his idea uh, and not the previous government. Right. I mean this is one of the interesting features of the Modi government. So often there's this sort of rebranding of the previous government's policies. Um do you think that this is something that they've been especially effective at sort of rebranding the old policies and giving them a new spin? Uh yes. Uh one of the things that Modi has uh believes that the previous government failed on uh was that while prime minister manmohan singh his predecessor uh shared a lot of the same vision in fact was uh one of the great visionaries in terms of what he wanted to accomplish in india he didn't actually get very much done he was not politically uh uh he was not a normal politician he was an academic if you wish uh and as you may know the second term of the manmohan singh government almost collapsed into almost total dysfunctionality uh because of various reasons including corruption scandals so modi's view is that i don't have to really go out there and project a new vision what i need to do is take a lot of what's on the ground and actually implement it uh and the fact that i actually get this thing the stuff through and have it tangibly visible to people will give me the support uh and and political gains and political capital uh that my predecessor didn't get for the same for the same policies. So to that end what have been some of the main successes so far? Well, if you go by the polling evidence, uh the the areas where the public gives him the highest points are one restoring India's foreign image where he gets about 70 to 80% depending on the poll that you get. uh and as you know as you may know in the first two years of his term he has traveled uh, almost all over the world about 40 or 50 countries uh and restored in particular foreign investor confidence in the country but otherwise boosted the image of india as a country that can a government that can actually get things done which is increasingly rare now in the world uh second the swachh bharat uh campaign which is or clean india uh while it's been criticized for the fact that a lot of people don't see much evidence of this on the ground the idea was always that this would be a social movement that this is not something that the central government cannot force people to go to the bathroom whether they build it or not uh but the idea was to have this develop as a social movement and at the heart of it was a sense for modi that while poor people were quite happy to receive um physical um to to get uh, money or other handouts 
the, they were also very concerned about the dignity of their life. And Swatch Bharat by basically saying, we will attempt to at least try to clean up the area or take cleanliness as a serious issue for people living in urban slums and so on, uh, touched a chord. And even though the poll rating for that has probably gone down from about 80 to 70, 65 percent, uh, it's still one of his most popular campaigns. Uh, and third is the issue of corruption. He has so far successfully ensured that no major corruption scandal has afflicted his government, even as he enters his third third year in power. Uh, and the sense that this is a government that's cl- much cleaner than previous governments, it's not to say that it's, it's a saintly government, but it's much cleaner than any, almost any previous government in the past 20, 30 years, mm-hmm. uh, is very strong with the public. Is there some way that they've ensured that? Is there a strategy that's allowed them to be a more clean government? Uh, well, one, because of things like Aadhaar and the use of a lot of e-governance initiatives, for example, the digital locker scheme and so on, in which a lot of the transactions and payments in the Indian system are now basically going online, even for poorer people. Uh, this has forced a degree of transparency on the system because it's just very hard to hide uh, bribes and so on if you're not if you're moving to a cashless uh, transaction structure. Second, Modi has had an interesting thing. While he has positioned himself as he says a pro-business government, uh, he has been also very clear not to provide access. Uh, on policy issues to India's largest corporations. So a lot of the very powerful politically uh, linked companies in the past have suddenly found themselves in the wilderness in which the government has said, we will set the policy, we will create a level playing ground, and we will make it easier for you to make money and do business. But the days when you could come and meet the prime minister on a one-on-one are gone. And he's completely reduced almost all access at the highest levels. And he's made it clear that he expects his ministers to do the same. And so anecdotally, journalists like myself who meet senior business corporation executives and both foreign and domestic, uh, it's remarkable how all of them have said that at the highest level at least, uh, there is no demand for money anymore. Um, Corruption is still there obviously at the lower levels, but it's a remarkably much cleaner government. And if you look at The Economist's Crony Capitalism Index, Transparency International's uh, Standard Corruption Indexes. India has fallen dramatically in all of them uh, uh, on all levels because it seems this this, this policy is working. Hmm. So those are some of the success stories. Have there been any standout failures as well? Yes, I think one of the big questions, as as you mentioned earlier, about the question of the nature of it, the religious nationalisms, that this is a religious nationalist party. So unsurprisingly, uh, it is part of his agenda. And he makes no bones of the fact that he is a very much a part of the of the Hindutva, the religious nationalist ideological bend. So what we have seen, uh, and it's one of the issues that is still being debated in India, is that uh, while the evidence of the number of sec- the amount of sectarian violence in India as it actually increased under him is still questionable. Statistically, there's still no serious evidence of that happening. Mm. But the real difference has definitely been that m- the prime minister no longer speaks out against it. In, even in the first BJP government uh, under Vajpayee, if there was a case of some uh, of somebody being lynched for holding beef, which is sacred to, uh, which is uh, cows are sacred to Hindus, uh, the prime minister would come out after a few days and say that this is not a good, good thing. Modi has kept silent. He has neither, neither said anything in favor 
nor has he said anything against Hindutva, except for one or two very rare occasions. It's almost as if he said basically that, uh, and my sense is when I've talked to his aides, is their view is that the last BJP government fell from power because it was seen as too liberal by its own base. A lot of them, a lot of about eight, anywhere between six to eight percentage points of the electorate stayed home who are BJP supporters and said the Vajpayee government is indistinguishable from the opposition. So why should we vote? So their sense is that they have to, if you wish, show or act like they are a Hindutva government if in actual legislation and actual regulations on the ground, they have actually done nothing that is doesn't already exist in the books. Right. So this was actually what I was about to ask is you can sort of see that evidence of Modi's Hindutva sort of RSS background in the silences, but are there any sort of active ways in which you can see a Hindutva agenda in the way that the Modi government governs? No, not really. I mean, I, I would argue, at least I would argue that I haven't found any evidence of that so far. Uh, he talks about the uniform civil code. Uh, and has had a commission set up to look into it, which will be about the, I don't know, 10th commission to look into it. But that doesn't really mean anything. Normally, in fact, in politics, setting up a commission is evidence of the government really not interested in, in doing anything. Uh, he's actually formed an alliance uh, with the with the uh, Kashmiri separatist party, the PDAP in, in Kashmir. It's not doing very well. Uh, but he's made it very clear that Article 370, the special status in the constitution in Kashmir, uh, as the only Muslim majority state, will not be affected. Mm-hmm. Um, he has done nothing uh, in terms of almost any other form of legislation uh, that has really affected anything such as the Hindu code bills and so on. Uh, so it's very hard to find much evidence of him actually doing anything. Uh, what has happened is that the state government level we're seeing a tighter enforcement of often existing legislation on such as cow protection, um, which laws that are rules that have existed on the books before, but never been taken very seriously. Mm-hmm. And in BJP rule states, at least some of them, you're seeing that enforcement taking place. But Modi himself has again, I said nothing, said nothing. He's almost left this to the state governments. If you think it's important to allow this to be done, to keep the right wing of the party happy, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to some degree, he's also happy. Uh, and I talk to his aides, they say this, we're also happy when the the elite English language media attacks us uh, because that makes it look like we are doing more than we actually are to the voting base that that uh, will drive this party, they hope, into victory in, in the 2019 elections. If we take a more international perspective, do you think that the current government has led a kind of change in the way that India is positioned in the world or the way that it's perceived in the world? Um, I think the key difference, and this is something when I've talked to Indian diplomats uh, uh, in his government, is that Modi argues that India need not hide what it actually believes. It was a common uh, stance in the past with India that we would say, we would maintain a certain type of rhetoric uh, for example, on non-alignment or, or north-south uh, issues. Um, and even while on actual policy, uh, we would actually be moving in a very different direction. Um, it was often derided by the leftist intellectuals that India uh, would look left and walk right. Modi now says, let's 
walk wherever we, whatever walk direction we are going, we should also look that way and speak that way. Mm-hmm. Um, in cricketing terminology, he's actually, I gather, used the phrase, bat on your front foot, do not be scared of exposing your wicket. Because, and that sense of confidence, India is now, a, you know, it's got a GDP bigger than Russia. Uh, it's got an economy that is one of the fastest growing in the world. Uh, and Modi's sense that we don't have to hide, it, hide this anymore. Mm. So the real shift has really been a more frank India about what it actually believes, a willingness to become, to express and physically show that it is closer to the United States uh, show a certain degree of opposition to China, which we were pr- reluctant to do so before, and also a willingness to discard or at least ignore certain organizations like the non-aligned movement, uh, which have been symbolically important to India, uh, but which have actually not been very important in terms of intangible terms for mm-hmm. the Indi- to Indian foreign policy. And more recently, walking away from SARC, I mean, this has got to be quite a big shift in India's uh, foreign actually, policy. Actually, previous prime ministers have skipped SARC summits. Narasimha Rao, for example, never went to a SARC summit because he thought it was a waste of time. But what in, in this case, is, let's put it this way, I don't think India has moved away from the idea of regional cooperation. But it has concluded that SARC, because of the fact that it is permanently paralyzed by Indo-Pakistani friction, uh, SARC is not the avenue that it wants to, to go down. And instead, it's promoting another organization, which has been somewhat dormant, uh, called BIMSTEC. BIMSTEC incorporates all the countries of SARC, minus Afghanistan and Pakistan, but also incorporates a number of Southeast Asian nations like Myanmar and Thailand. Uh, and this has now been India sort of picked this up and said, okay, this is the organization that we can productively move forward on the connectivity and economic and security linkages that we want to web this this area. Uh, Modi is, and I've met him personally on this, he's very committed uh, to the idea of regional cooperation. But for him, it's about the small neighboring countries, Bangladesh, Nepal, Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. Uh, these are the countries that he has he has said quite openly that these are countries India neglected, uh, and it personally bothers him that a lot of these countries, the population is hostile to India. Mm. It, in some ways, it it, it uh, converges with the Hindutva school of thinking, in which countries that are would be considered part of a sort of Indic sphere of cultural sphere uh, should be much closer to India. And for BJP person, it bothers them that this is not the case. Now, some people have characterized Modi's style of governing as authoritarian, that he keeps this sort of closed, small circle of advisors and he doesn't really take input from other people. Do you think that's a fair and accurate characterization? No. In fact, quite the opposite. He is perpetually hunting for technocratic uh, solutions from others. Uh, When he met the first World Bank, uh, first meeting with the World Bank president uh, as prime minister, uh, after the World Bank president had lined out uh, how much billions of dollars World Bank was prepared to give to India, Modi's response is that, look, I can get lots of money. Money is not an issue nowadays. What I need is experts. I want mm-hmm. people, the world's best brains on, let's say, irrigation or public health. Uh, India can't attract those brains. If I rewrite to some professor at Harvard and ask him to come, he'll often say, why, why should I? But the World Bank can do this on our behalf. So I need those ideas more than anything else. And he's been more than happy to bring in people who are very clearly not uh, ideologically, in fact, often ideologically hostile to him. But he wants them for because he feels they're important to the governance issues that he is pushing. Um, the 
real, I think, what you may be rightly describing is that his his political ministerial circle is very small. Hmm. Now, remember, Modi was an anti-establishment figure. He's a person who effectively not only positioned himself as being opposed to the Congress, but also opposed to the dominant Advani Vajpayee faction of his own party. He was an outsider who had never served in Delhi, but had had success in the states. And he positioned himself that way, that this is an old corrupt structure that exists in Delhi that doesn't understand what people want. I'm the guy who can do this. Uh, he was a, if you want to use an American example, he was a sort of Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan uh, figure uh, in terms of what he meant in the relationship between state and capital. The result of that, however, is that he has purged his own party of almost everybody from the previous uh, ruling faction. And that has meant the coterie that he has is actually very small. And that is definitely the case. It's probably only five or six ministers uh, who would be considered part of his inner circle. Uh, and he has centralized a huge number of policy issues in his own hands. When asked how many policy issues he personally handles, he's often said 50 to 60, which is staggering for a, a, a prime minister, especially of a country of over a billion people. Mm -hmm. Uh, and he works. He works very, very hard. But even then, it's just simply too much uh, for him to handle. Uh, and this is one reason he's he continues to have problems in implementing a lot of the policies. He's an implementation man. But ultimately, he can only focus on five or six things at a time to actually get them through. Uh, part of the reason why he is considered authoritarian is simply because he's politically very powerful. Uh, or to put it another way, if any prime minister had what he had, which is an absolute majority in parliament, in which almost all the mem all the MPs are personally loyal to him, uh, and in which the opposition has virtually disintegrated uh, in comparison, and he's won on the trot, uh, or he's won the vast bulk of the state elections that have come since he has has, has been elected, or his allies have, and he has at the last survey done by the Pew Foundation in Washington an 81% approval rating. Uh, you will tend to be a little uh, arrogant uh, because you don't need to make, you don't feel you need to make the concessions uh, that a person who had a 40% approval rating and a minority position in parliament would. If those were to change, I would suspect we'll see a slightly different Modi in terms of at least his, his relationship with other politicians. Mm -hmm. Now, you've argued that the government faces some major contradictions at the policy level, um, which it's going to need to face further down the track. So could you take us through some of those contradictions? Um, he has to make a call eventually uh, about what he wants to do about the social fabric and secular fabric of India. While he has done nothing to change anything, uh, there is a problem of two issues. One is a rising nationalism among a new and nouveau middle class that is rising. This nationalism, uh, in some forms at least, is both militaristic uh, and extremely um, unsympathetic to anything that is seen as a humiliation or somehow a reduction of India uh, in any way. This makes foreign policy in India a lot harder to handle. Um, and it also makes their willingness to accept the degree of heterogeneity that exists in India, both cultural and so on, uh, a lot harder. And a lot of this is, comes out of the Hindi-speaking areas of North India. And this is some of the things that he needs to – he has to figure out how to temper. 
Um, this is a larger social issue that all the prime ministers of India in recent times have had to face. Uh, and he is just the most recent person on that front. Uh, he will have to maintain, he has tried to restore India's economic growth rates that existed before 2008, which are at 10 or 9%. Uh, at the heart of that was a huge surge in private sector capital expenditure, especially in infrastructure. That has not taken off since he has come to power. Economy has grown, but not because of that. And so we're struggling at, not struggling, it's doing well, but it's at a 7, 7.5% level, which will not get higher unless he brings that, that private uh, sector capex expenditure in. And that is tied in, and there's a contradiction there because his entire battle against crony capitalism actually makes it more difficult for some chunks of that private sector to spend money. Uh, who are basically saying, uh, if we have to spend money in the present regulatory environment, we have to be crony. We have to go down the crony path. So this is a contradiction that he, one or other contradiction he has to face. And I'll add on the foreign policy side, uh, he has adopted a mild protectionist trade policy. He's in increased tariffs for electronic components. Um, for example, he has avoided uh, or try to change existing free trade agreements, uh, blocked policy forward movement in the WTO. Um, part of that is because of the weakness of the private sector in India today, and part of that is because of his desire to boost manufacturing in India, uh, the so-called Make in India project. Uh, but doing it via protectionism is normally not a viable or um, sustainable policy. It also runs counter to a lot of the foreign policy strategic gains that he's been made, for example, with the United States. Uh, and there is a contradiction in having a trade policy that discriminates against the West or at least America, even while you are trying to build a larger defense and political relationship with the same country. And that is a contradiction that he's going to have to face in maybe two or three years. Now, the Modi government was elected on a wave of popular support. Do you feel that it's managed to maintain that support? I mean, you, you mentioned Modi's high mm. approval ratings before, but there have been some state governments that have uh, that have fallen to the BJP uh, in the last two years. Hmm. Do we see some counter-indicators to that popularity? Uh, there's a distinction between BJP support and Modi support. Modi support, as I've mentioned, continues to be really high. The Pew survey indicated that it had fallen uh, from the last survey uh, a year ago by four, five percentage points from um, 85, I think, to 81. But 81 is still very high. And what was striking is when I asked the director of research at, uh, of uh, the Pew Foundation, he said what was interesting is that it was across the board, that it was whether it was across gender, age, region, rural versus urban, Modi's support was staggeringly high. It was marginally higher among men, slightly more in North India than South India. But broadly, he said, among the 15 world leaders that Pew had surveyed, he said his Modi was really in a league all by himself. Even uh, Putin or Merkel couldn't mm. come close. Um, but BJP support is not so strong. Uh, we're looking if people are asked who they will vote for, we're looking at a good figure of somewhere between 35 to 40%. This is not a Pew survey. I think this is the India Today survey and the Stavani surveys that were done earlier uh, this year and late last year. 
that still would mean, and when there are voters are asked who would you vote for, would still seem to result in a BJP or at least a BJP alliance retaining an absolute majority in parliament, which is by Indian standards excellent because, uh, as you may know, uh, there's very strong anti-incumbency sentiment in India. So Modi is still politically doing very well by himself. He, the Congress party, the main opposition, does not have a leader who's anywhere close to Modi. Uh, Sonia Gandhi gets about 25% approval rating and Rahul gets about 15 um, And I don't think the Congress so far has been able to show that it can really put up much resistance to him. Uh, it's the regional parties that are more likely to give, them, give him a hard time. And as you mentioned, they have lost a few state elections, most notably Bihar. Uh, and Bihar, it was a, a coalition of two state parties, uh, regional parties that formed together and defeated the BJP. And Bihar is a very interesting example. Um, Modi uh, campaigned in Bihar, uh, but he campaigned against the chief minister, Nitish Kumar, who was both considered honest uh, and who had a very good record of governance. So in effect, Modi was running against a person who matched him on what he considered his strengths, which were the governance record that he had shown in Gujarat uh, and his anti-corruption stance. So he was unable uh, to defeat Nitish Kumar in the end. Um, and look, and even though in that same state, the BJP had swept at the national election. Since then, however, he has won Assam, he has won other states. Uh, and the real test will be early next year when Uttar Pradesh, the largest state in the country, uh, goes to the polls. Uh, so Modi will continue to have a, a good run, I think, at the state level, at the BJP one, but it is not one that is guaranteed. Uh, but at the national level so far, Modi continues to be almost unchallenged uh, within, uh, within the political system. Pramit, it's been so fascinating to hear your views on what can be a very divisive topic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Okay, that's all for today. Bye for now.